Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Brethren, let us hear the word of God. <clears throat> Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Amen. <clears throat> May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His precious Word. Now, brethren, we have established that to accomplish any goal, there must be someone to plan it and means by which to accomplish it. We have seen in God's Word that God has a gracious, eternal purpose to save sinners by Jesus Christ. Now, in our last study, we considered God the Father's role in this so great salvation. <clears throat> and that the Father punished, excuse me, <clears throat> the Scriptures declare that the Father <coughs> purposed salvation that the Father sent His Son, and that the Father punished His Son. Those were the things that we covered as His role in this great salvation. And let me remind you, <clears throat> since it was several weeks ago, that we see all of the Godhead actively involved in the salvation of sinners. The Father purposed salvation, the Son accomplished salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies salvation. And there is a glorious and perfect biblical revelation and harmony regarding this work. Brethren, if we take what is normally taught today and carefully examine it by the Word, we have the most fragmented concept of salvation possible. The Father desiring something that the Son has not, in fact, accomplished, and that the Holy Spirit's attempting to bring to pass. Whereas, <clears throat> I think a careful study of the Word of God should reveal to us the Father's glorious plan, a successful Savior, and the uh, Holy Spirit's wonderful application of salvation to God's dear children. <clears throat> now, the reason we spend time looking at that and going over it and repeating it is because we don't want to get in the habit of studying doctrine uh, in the way that often uh, bodies are dissected. Uh, bodies are all taken apart. <clears throat> Sometimes we take the heart out there, we take the lungs over here, we put the gallbladder there, and we're looking at it, and we cut into pieces and, and look at it. And, and we must realize that it doesn't just sit there by itself. All these things work together. And we want to see a whole. We want to see testimony from the Scripture. It's very easy for anybody just to take a few verses, as I am forced to do, constrained by time, and say, here's a doctrine. Anyone can do that. The Jehovah's Witnesses can do that. The Mormons can do that. What we ultimately want to see is the flow of God's mind. To us, from Genesis to Revelation. And of course, <clears throat> those are the longest and the most difficult studies because we want to see how they work together. I won't be able to prosecute that, of course, the way I would like to for a number of reasons. But this is why I continue to drop these doctrines in 
to the overall picture that we've seen unfolding thus far in Scripture. We've seen that God the Father is sovereign over all things, including the salvation of sinners. <clears throat> Modern American, culturized, uh, professing Christianity uh, likes to say that God is sovereign when they're familiar with the term, but they don't like to apply it to the issue of salvation, which of course means ultimately he's not sovereign, that he simply rules over some things. Whereas we believe that the scriptural testimony is established beyond any doubt that he rules over all things. Alright, that being the context, then we want to see how salvation is uh, laid out in the scriptures. And we began by looking at man's lost condition. Then we looked at God's glorious purpose for salvation. And having looked at his purpose of salvation, we've broken it down a little bit further as we saw in our last study with God the Father purposing, sending His Son, punishing His Son. And that brings us tonight to the Son's role. So hopefully that at least brings us to where we are and we're looking at something that fits uh, uh, together, I trust, in a precious and beautiful biblical uh, mosaic. Tonight we want to consider the role of the Son in salvation. And uh, we want to call this, <clears throat> taken from verse 25, able to save to the uttermost. <clears throat> now, <coughs> Christ accomplishes salvation as the only mediator between God and man. A mediator is a go-between. He interposes between two hostile parties for the purpose of reconciling them. Two hostile parties brought together by the work of a mediator, a go-between. The Bible reveals that as mediator, Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. And in this holy office, he accomplished his Father's will, which was the salvation of his people. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. <clears throat> now this was spoken prophetically, that Jesus came to accomplish His Father's will. He was sent to be the mediator, and <clears throat> coming to do His Father's will is prophesied. As it tells us in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, quoting Psalms, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Christ spoke of this as a child. Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? He understood as a child of that age that he was here to do his Father's will. <clears throat> Christ himself declared it while in his ministry on earth. John chapter 6, verse 38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And he proclaimed that he accomplished it. John chapter 17, verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished 
the work which thou gavest me to do. It couldn't be any plainer, brethren. It was prophesied that he would do the Father's will. He declared that he would do the Father's will. And he said that he accomplished the Father's will. And in his dying words, he said, It is finished. So, Christ's role then, as the priest, in his overall work as the mediator, is crucial to a biblical understanding of his substitutionary sacrifice. If you truly want to understand the atonement, you must understand Christ's role as a high priest. Now, this is such a wonderful subject. God willing, someday in the future, I intend to do a series of messages just on this one subject. But in the context of trying to study the doctrine of grace, it would be far too much for us at this point. So we're just going to take a bird's eye view of Christ as our high priest. But if there is anything that establishes the particular character of Christ's atonement, it is his priesthood. For those of you who have ever wrestled with this particular subject, it certainly may not be so for you, but this is what helped me understand the difference between what I've been taught most of my life and what I am now convinced the Scriptures teach about Christ's definite atonement. When you truly understand priesthood, I do not think that you could come to any other conclusion than a particular redemption. Quite obviously, the fact that others exist that don't hold that position <laughs> means that you can believe something else. But uh, I would certainly exhort them, if they have not done so, to do a very detailed study of Christ as the priest. So, let's begin by considering, then, the definition of a priest. This is important. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 gives us a wonderful biblical Definition. It says that <clears throat> for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices, excuse me, gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, this is a clear and wonderful definition. <coughs> Now, the first thing to notice about a priest is that he is taken from among men. He is taken from among men and ordained for men. The prepositions in this particular verse are vital. <clears throat> Sometimes those little connecting words open up a great deal of good theology. <clears throat> now, the, in other words, what we're being told is that a prophet was a representative. A prophet was representative from God to man. But a priest was a representative from men to God. You see that? A prophet represented God to men. He spoke the will, the revelation of God to men. He was the voice of God for the people. The priest was Godward. He represented men to God. 
Now, his work is in relation to and on behalf of particular men with real particular sins. Brother, the whole idea of a priesthood is representative. Someone appointed, someone ordained to stand on behalf of the room of others. Even pagan religion understands this. And when pagan priests go before their false gods, they're there on behalf of a specific people. The priests of Israel did not offer up sacrifices for the king of Babylon. They offered sacrifices for God's people. It was a specific sacrifice for a specific people. This is all typological. We must always be very careful with types, that we do not take them and run too far with them. All they are there to do is to suggest in shadow form realities later fulfilled in Christ. (coughs) Now, (coughs) the second thing to notice is uh, that he is ordained to this office. A priest did not appoint himself to this role, nor did he run for office. He had to be qualified, called, and ordained to do this work. God was the one who called the priesthood. He commanded who was to be priests, who were to be priests, and they were to be anointed, consecrated, and set apart for that special work. No one else was acceptable to God. Once again, this is typological of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah, means anointed. When was he anointed? Go down to the river Jordan and see the Lord Jesus Christ. In his baptism, the Holy Ghost poured out upon him, anointing him for his glorious work. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed. He was consecrated for this great vital and holy work by God the Father. No one else was appointed. Neither you nor I could be the kind of priest that Christ Jesus was and is. Third thing to notice is that he was ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The primary act of a priest is to offer. He represents a particular people, and he offers on their behalf. He has been authorized to represent them alone. And he offers a glorious gift, sacrifice for sin. Now, there is a twofold work of a priest. That's what we want to think of next. A twofold work of a priest. The first is to offer sacrifice, and the second is to offer prayers of intercession. To offer sacrifice 
and to offer prayers of intercession. Now, Isaiah 53, verse 11, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Why? How will he accomplish that? Well, it goes on to say, For he shall bear their iniquities. He will justify many and they will be justified on the basis of his bearing their iniquities. There is no justification except the burden and weight of guilt be paid by a proper sacrifice. <clears throat> they will be justified because he will bear their sins. Then to offer prayers of intercession. Isaiah 53, 12 goes on to say, He hath poured out his soul unto death. There's the sacrifice. And he bare the sin of many, it's said once again, and made intercession for the transgressors. The transgressors are the many. How do we know that? Because he would not intercede for someone for whom he did not pay the price. doesn't make any sense, does it? I've offered nothing for you, but I'm going to pray for you anyway. That doesn't make any sense at all. The transgressors spoken of here are the many whose sins he bore. They are justified because he's borne their sins. And bearing their sins, he makes intercession on behalf of them. He is praying for the application of the benefits of his death. Does everybody see that? There is the offering up of the sacrifice. The sacrifice is for a specific people. And the intercession goes hand in hand with the offering of the sacrifice. You do not offer if you do not plan to intercede. You cannot intercede if you have not offered. Okay? Alright. So then, <clears throat> Christ bore the sin of many and interceded for them. And this is why those who are justified partake of the blessing. Sinners enjoy the benefits of Christ's death because He intercedes on their behalf. Now, let's go specifically to Christ's work as a priest. Let's see this hammered out. Now, remember, in Hebrews 5.1 it tells us that the priest was taken from among men. So the very first thing to consider is the fact of Christ's incarnation. And now you understand, I trust, why Christ became man. He was chosen from among men as a man to represent men. In order to be taken from among men and ordained for men, the Son of God became man. Now, brother, this is glorious. This, 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 
This ought to be the, the rejoicing ground of all God's children. This is no dry, stale doctrine, brethren. God became man. Why? When we say, well, to die for them, that's true. But as we study through the Scriptures carefully, we begin, the Lord begins to show us in detail what that means. He, was, he became man to be the priest for His people. He is the representative of those for whom He offers. He had to be a man. This is why John 1.14 tells us, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the priest is taken from among men. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And while we can say in a general sense, to die for sinners, we may say in a very specific biblical sense, to be the high priest of his people. Hebrews 2.14 makes that explicit. For as much then as the children, the children given to God, for then as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Amen. We serve a risen Savior, and we're no longer under the power of a defeated foe. Well, Christ's incarnation is a crucial part of His glorious work as a priest. <clears throat> he was anointed at His baptism for this glorious work. Now, Christ's sacrifice we want to consider next. The first thing is, what did He sacrifice? What did the Lord sacrifice? Well, Scripture could not be more clear. Jesus sacrificed His body and blood. As He said at the Last Supper, This is my body, which is broken, words of substitution, for you, in your stead, on your behalf. Brethren, this isn't something that's just general. Jesus isn't saying, well, I'm doing this and I hope it lands somewhere. And I say that and not to be irreverent. I'm saying that it's, it's important for us to think clearly on this matter. Jesus was doing this for someone. He was taken from among men to offer gifts on their behalf. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Likewise, he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. It's for you. For you. Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
the high priest offered up himself. Brethren, this is one of the extraordinary mysteries and great doctrines of Scripture that we have all of these types in the Old Testament all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He's not only the high priest, he's the sacrifice offered up. All these things come to pass in Him. The blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And these are saints saying this. Not everyone can say we've been washed from our sins. But washed from our sins in His own blood. Brethren, when the Scripture speaks of blood over and over and over, and some of the great old hymns speak of the crimson tide and the gore that flowed, all of these types of things, the, the, the lost man says, I don't like to talk about that bloody religion. But it is in this that God's children rejoice. Because we're bloodthirsty? No. Because His blood poured out means He died. He died. He was a sacrifice offered up. And He died on behalf of someone. The high priest offered up something that turned away. The wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. In John 10 verse 11, Christ says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth His life for substitution, for the sheep. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay, I lay down my life. That's why all the talk of the blood. That's why the talk of the broken body. My life. For the sheep. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Brethren, this is Christ, the high priest, offering up the sacrifice. Gifts, sacrifices for sin. The high priest offers. There was a wave offering. There was the offer burnt upon the altar. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, held up before the eyes of all men, offered up before the withering wrath of God. The high priest laid down his life. He offered up the sacrifice, which was himself. It was in this way that God the Father provided the Lamb. Typically spoken of in Genesis. Father, where's the Lamb? God will provide the Lamb. The sacrifice for sins the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was not only the sacrifice, but the priest who offered it. Well then, 
as high priest, if he is the sacrifice, if it's his body and blood broken for someone to whom did he offer that sacrifice? To whom did he offer that sacrifice? Again, Hebrews 5.1 says that every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. It is God who is the offended party. It is God whose laws have been broken. And it is He who must receive the gifts and sacrifices for sins. Paul tells us in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, verse 2, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. To God for a sweet smelling savor. God is the offended party. His righteous law has been broken and despised. God's justice must be satisfied. Men are sinners. They are filthy in their corruption and pollution. How can they come to a holy God? They cannot, except they have someone whom God will receive on their behalf. Jesus Christ is the one appointed, anointed, and who offered the sacrifice that the Father received. It was offered up unto God, and He was satisfied. Good news in this Gospel. Before whom, then, was this offered? For whom did the Lord Jesus offer this sacrifice? It is commonly said today, and it is taught as the orthodoxy of the day, and there are even great, uh, great men in history whom we love and respect, who have held a position different from us. But brethren, when you go to the passages in the Scriptures that speak specifically for whom Christ died, it is always a particular people. <clears throat> we can just look at a smattering of the, the, the texts, but Matthew 1, verse 21, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save. He shall save his people from their sins. The scriptures call those for whom Christ died his people. John chapter 10 verse 11 says, The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Specifically, those that are his sheep. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, I'm not fooling myself. Uh, I, I realize that that verse is all about husbands and wives. It wasn't given specifically to build an entire doctrine of the atonement on. 
But once again, the purpose is to point out that over and over and over the scriptures repeat that Jesus Christ as priest, Jesus Christ as the one who offered himself, offered himself for a specific people. So here we have his people, his sheep, his church. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know all things, that all things work together for good to them, particular group, that love God. To them, particular group, who are the called, particular group, according to his purpose. For whom, particular people, he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, whom, the called, them, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. Let's remember Isaiah. The justified are justified because he died for them. And he intercedes for them. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who's the us being spoken of here? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Why is it? that they cannot have anything laid to their charge. Why can no charge stick? Isaiah 53. He justified many, for he died for their sins. He bore their iniquities and intercedes for the transgressors. That's why nothing can stick. It is God that justifieth, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Same us. His people, his sheep, his church, his elect. There's another uh, category that it speaks of, and that is the many. The many. Isaiah 53.11 says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of, of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Hebrews 2.10 For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. They're also called the children God gave him. Hebrews 2.13 Behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children... What children? The children God hath given me. 
are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same. Brethren, here is Christ, the whole mystery of the Incarnation, come to full vision for us. Here is why God the Son became man, that he might be taken from among men as their great high priest. He represents his people, the church, his sheep, his elect, the many, the children God gave him. He took flesh and blood so that he might have them broken on their behalf and in so doing destroy him that had the power of death. This is why God's children are free. This is why they can rejoice. This is why there is certainty in their glorification. No condemnation can be laid against them because the high priest died in their place bearing all of their sins in his body upon the tree. And not only has he accomplished all those glorious words that we looked at a few weeks ago, justification, sanctification, glorification, reconciliation, propitiation, and all of the other words, not only has he secured these benefits, but he intercedes that they might receive those benefits. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But Christ being come, and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. It doesn't say having made salvation possible. It says, he obtained something. And it is eternal redemption for us. Listen carefully. For Christ, verse 24, is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ the high priest, raised again the third day from the dead, enters into heaven at his glorious ascension. And the writer of Hebrews likens this to the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, both in the tabernacle and in the temple. He says, this is just a picture of now the great and grand, real, true, finished work of Christ. Run out of all the adjectives and adverbs. We can't make it big enough. Christ has accomplished something. He has obtained eternal redemption and He is now appearing in the presence of God for us on behalf of somebody. John seventeen nine, the Lord Jesus in what is called His great high priestly prayer says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. But for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. He goes on to say, And all those who will believe because of their testimony. That's us. Hebrews 7.25, which we began with this evening. Wherefore, 
for this cause, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Brethren, His very presence at the right hand of the Father is our eternal security. It's not our decision that's our eternal security. It is Christ at the right hand of the Father. The high priest who represented someone made a successful atonement for them and now pleads that on their behalf for all eternity. And that is why they are saved. And that is why Paul can say in Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The eternal symbol of our righteousness is right there at the hand of the Father. At the right hand of the Father. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. It is God that justifieth. Who can condemn? Because it is Christ that died, yea, is risen again, and maketh intercession for us. Let's draw some conclusions from this then. In considering the Son's role in salvation, and specifically, not looking at His being a prophet or priest, but looking specifically at His, uh, excuse me, a, a prophet or king, we're looking specifically at His being a priest, He was taken from among men. This is why His glorious incarnation. He has a twofold work to offer as a substitute. Both sacrifice and prayers of intercession. In His incarnation, He offered sacrifice as a high priest. He is the priest offering up the sacrifice. His body and His blood. Body broken, blood poured out for His people. This was offered to God on behalf of His people, His sheep, His church, His elect, the many, the children God gave Him. And He lives forever to intercede for them. If that is the case, then number one, if the Father's will was that Christ as a priest was to represent and save all men, then Christ did not accomplish the Father's will. Because he obtained redemption for someone. If it was for all men, we must explain why there are men in hell. Number two, if Christ as a priest died for all men and intercedes for all men, but all men are not saved, as the scripture makes clear, then he has not successfully accomplished the work of a priest. 
Everybody with me on that? He hasn't accomplished the work of a priest. If he died for and intercedes for them, and yet they are in hell, what happened? If Christ died for all men, but does not intercede for all men, then he has not accomplished the work of a priest. He's only done half the work. Well, I've died for you. But I haven't interceded on your behalf that the benefits might be yours. Brethren, could we possibly charge that upon Christ? Why would he shed his blood for men and yet not pray that the benefits of that shed blood be given them? If he shed his blood and intercedes for all, but some of them go to hell, then the Father has not answered the Son's prayers. You need to let that sink in. I've offered. I've interceded. They're in hell. There can be only one conclusion. God the Father has said, No, I won't hear your prayers. Could we possibly conclude that? John 11, verse 42, the Lord Jesus says, I knew that thou hearest me always. Always. God the Father always hears the Son, brethren, because He is perfect. And finally, if the Father's will was for Christ to save all that the Father gave Him, and if the Father gave Him all men, then Christ is not accomplished his Father's will. And these are not word games. And we're not attempting to say, let's, let's see who can make the, the most difficult philosophical, theological comment. Not at all. These are plain and simple thoughts that must come from the biblical data. Brethren, I think that when we take it, again, this is an abbreviated form, But brethren, when we take these all together, what we see is a glorious purpose, a successful atonement, and eternal redemption obtained, which is applied, as we will see later on in our studies, by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no disunity among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Father purposed to save. The Son accomplished the salvation. The Holy Spirit applies it. We can only say that the Father purposed something that the Son did not accomplish if the purpose was to save all men or that somehow or another the Holy Spirit is not able to accomplish what He's trying to do. Or we may say that thou shalt call His name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And able to save to the uttermost all that come to the Father by him. Does this exclude the hungry soul? If you see your sin, friend, the declaration of the gospel, 
that Jesus Christ, the high priest, saves sinners. Repent. Believe on Him. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He is able to save to the uttermost. Let's pray. Father, so many more things to say on this grand and glorious subject. And yet, oh Father, we cannot say them all. We couldn't say them all in our lifetimes. What a deep, mysterious, and glorious truth. Yet, oh Father, we praise and thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, suffered and bled and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. We have life in him. Oh, Father, if there is one tonight who has not trusted Christ Jesus, oh, would they flee to him who made a perfect and acceptable sacrifice for sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. 
were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.